Don't laugh, Cliff. I'll make you go back there and hit the button every time I need to. There we go. Praise God. James X. It's the title of this message. <laughs> the, uh, what started as a four-part series turned into a nine-part series, but I hope you've been blessed. You guys been enjoying it? Getting some good stuff out of it? This is such a great book. You know, there's so much practical application for today. And it's, it still blows me away that there's, there were some ministers a long time ago because of some misunderstandings were like, we want this one out of the Bible. But it is such a, a, a great instruction for us today. Many people have referred to it as the book of Proverbs of the New Testament because it has so much uh, information for us to live our lives. And, and we can look at that and it, it makes an impact today. And we're not going to spend too much time recapping last week because I want to get into it. But, uh, man, I just hope that this has been a, a, a great time for you guys, a great instruction, a great challenge for everybody. Because I know I've been challenged as I read this and I learn and I'm, I'm, I'm reminded and it kind of pointed out the things where I'm like, yeah, I could probably be doing this a little bit better. I could probably be, be dealing with some of this stuff. And uh, it's great. The great thing about God and it's the difference between the devil and God when, when you're being challenged with something in your life is that with the devil, it's condemnation. He says that you've messed up. You're making a mistake and there's no way out. But with God, it's the difference between condemnation and conviction is that when we're convicted, God says, yeah, we need to take care of some things, but there's hope. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There, you're, you're not stuck where you're at. The devil tells you there's no way out. You're stuck where you're at. But God says, I've got a way out for you. Amen. So remember that as, you, as, we're, as we're going through this, if you feel convicted, it's not, it's not to make you feel bad. It's not to, to make you feel like there's no hope or no way out. It's, it's to challenge you to live your life the way God intended you to live it. Amen? Amen. So let's get started. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. It says, be patient. Some of you guys, that's like a four-letter word, huh? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we looked at last week, James was basically addressing uh, those who were rich among the brethren, saying, hey, don't let your riches control you. Make sure that you're being a blessing to others, and don't, don't, don't hang your, your, uh, your assurity on your riches, because that's just going to fail you. Instead, place your trust in God. Amen? But now he's dealing with the saints that are suffering. Many of these are probably poor, but he's starting to address those who are suffering in this world and those who are being mistreated. And what does he say to them? He says, be patient. How many of you feel like things aren't always going great in your life? Things could be a little bit better. Sure, we've all felt like that, right? When you're going through hard times, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that, 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 that there's no hope for you. But God is just saying, be patient. And James is addressing those that are suffering because there were plenty that were hurting. There were plenty that were struggling. And he says, and there were plenty being mistreated. And he says, just be patient for the time being. And if you remember, this is essentially the same advice that was, that was given. Well, we looked at it eight weeks ago in, in, uh, in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. He says, remember this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. He says, you know what? You're going through some tough times right now, but be patient. Earlier in the book, he said, matter of fact, you should consider it kind of a joy. You could consider it a good thing because these, these trials that you're going against will begin to shape you and mold you into the person. God will use those situations to mold you into the person that God wants you to be. Have you ever seen a, a, a potato that grows next to something, or like a rock or something? And have you ever seen like weird-shaped potatoes or weird-shaped fruit because they're growing? Or, or have you seen like a tree growing next to something and it begins, to, it begins to shape the way the tree grows? Matter of fact, I saw this amazing thing once, this guy who had been growing a bunch of saplings out of the ground. And uh, as they were growing up in the branches and the trees, he began to, to shape them and weave them together. And if you, if you look at it now... It's the shape of a chair. This, this tree has grown into the shape of a chair, and he's weaved it together as it's grown. And it, it literally is, it looks like a chair, like a wicker chair, but it's a living tree. 
And now this didn't happen overnight, but as, he, as it began to grow, he pressed on it, and he pushed on it, and, he, and he, he began to shape it into what he wanted it to do. Now, I'll never ever say that God is sending these bad things into your life, but he will use them to shape you into the person that he wants you to be. He'll, he'll use these situations to, to help you become strong and to help increase and grow your faith. Because the truth is, is, is you know, we, how many of you guys want just a, a large, super big amount of awesome faith? Who wants that? How many know you can't have that if, if there's nothing to have faith over? You can't have any. If there's, if there's no reason to have faith, why would you have faith? There's a saying that, that I like. It says that faith untested is faith untrusted. Because we need to have that pressing against us to begin to shape our lives. And like I said, I, I never for once believe that God is sending calamity and sickness and hurt and disease into your life. But... When the world sends these things, when the devil sends these things, God will use them to shape you. And God says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. What that means is that as we live our life until Jesus comes back, we're going to have to be patient in some certain areas in our life. We're going to have to wait on him. Some of you guys are, are going through some stuff and you're like, I've been, I've been praying for God to, to relieve me of this. I've been praying for God to do something and it seems like he's not listening. But God just says, be patient. Be patient. And the example that he used here is the, is the farmer. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, till it receives the early and the late rains. If any of you guys have ever planted something, done some gardening, or if you've had any experience with farming, it's not like Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Where you go out in the, in the front yard, you throw your beans down, and poof, it just shoots from the sky. And everything that you, I mean, that's how, that's how we live our lives today. We go into the freezer and we get a burrito out and we throw it in the microwave. And I mean, we can have dinner in like a minute and a half. Because we don't have any patience in this world. I mean, we want everything. We want it. We know what we want. And we want it yesterday, basically. This is how we look at life. But the farmer, the farmer can't be like that. The farmer, he plants his, his, his seed into the ground. And he has to wait. And he has to wait for it to begin to grow. It has to receive the rain so it can be nourished from the ground and the water so that it can finally grow. And I remember when I was a kid, I guess, uh, and I know that my kids have done it too, but we do those experiments where you, you, know, you put the, the corn kernel in the, or in, the, in the cup with, the, with different kinds of fluid to see what, you know, was soda going to make it grow faster or water going to make it grow faster? And I, I used to just be... Um, amazed by that and watching how like you put it in the ground there's nothing there and then a few days later you come there's something sticking up out of the ground but there would be times where i'm like i wonder if it's doing anything i wonder if it's growing and then i start digging around in there and i start and i end up i pull it out and i go you know what sure enough it was growing i can see the 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 not a sapling the the sprout is is coming out of the of the seed i can see that that's happening but now it's it's dead there's nothing i can do you can't put it back once you dig it up and that's what happens with the farmers if they're not patient they begin digging things up trying to figure out what's going on they're going to receive no fruit no crop and the same is true for us when we're, when we're asking god for something in our lives we're asking him to to relieve us for something to get us through something and we're like Man, I've been praying, and Pastor, I've been praying and praying, and God's not answering my prayers. He's like, I mean, it's been like, it's been like 30, 40 minutes since I prayed, and, and nothing's happened. And you know what? If God's not going to, you know what? I guess I'm just going to give up because He hasn't answered my prayer yet. And that's what happens to us. We give up so quickly, and we stop having faith. We stop trusting because we think God's not listening when all He's saying is, be patient. And he goes on to say that he has to wait for the early and the late rains. You know, the, the farmer doesn't have any control over the weather. No control over the weather at all. All he can do is plant his seed and he, and he trusts and he waits patiently that the rain is going to come. And there's things in our lives that we can't control either. Matter of fact, most things in your life you can't control. You can't control what the weather's going to be like. You can't control what the government's going to do. You can't control what other people are going to do. But we just continue to trust. I mean, you've got to think about in those days, 
they didn't have the irrigation techniques that we have today. We live out in, in Marana, and it's, it's crazy. They bring out these, they have these irrigation trenches all along the sides of the fields that always have water running in them. And I don't know where they get the water from because you are in the desert, but there's always water running through these irrigation trenches. And they bring these big, um, they look like, like big pipes on, on big legs and rails, and they run those across the farm, and they just spray out the water as they're going over the fields. And, and they t- it doesn't matter if it's going to rain or not because they can get water to it. But this wasn't the case back then. They had to be patient for the rains to come. And they had to, to use wisdom as well. That's why there were certain seasons when they, pl- they didn't just plant whenever they wanted. They knew when the rains were coming, there were seasons. They had to use wisdom when they lived out their life, when they, they worked in the fields. And I think the same is true for us. Like the farmer, we have to be patient to let God work in our lives. And there's many things that we can't control. There's many things that we face in this, living in this earth just because we live here. We live in a fallen world, and stuff happens. But God has promised better for us. And the long, as long as our heart attitude is right and our, our trust is in God, He's going to get us through it. Amen. And the truth is, is that even if we're living in some calamity, we're living in struggles, even if we're, we're poor in this world, the truth is we will be rich in the next. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. And then it's with faith and patience that we inherit the promise. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. He says, I want you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Having that full assurance has nothing to do with the situation that we find ourselves in this world right now. That has to do with complete trust in God. And if with patience, even if nothing in your world changes and you live the rest of your life exactly the way it is right now, in the end, you still will have something better. Now, I believe that God wants something better for you right now. But even if nothing changes, even if the, the, the government collapses and, and, and you know, they, they say that it's illegal to be a Christian and, and all of those things, nothing changes. Even if they tell us we can't practice our faith, even if they tell us that we can't have a church building anymore and we can't meet in each other, nothing changes. We'll put our trust in God. And we're going to do those things anyway, just to be clear, even if they say that we can't. But if we put our trust in God, we will inherit. There's nothing that they can take away from us. Paul said that I'm convincing their life, nor death, nor, nor anything can come between the love of, of, of Christ and us. Nothing can take that away. If we'll just be patient. And it's just like when we looked at last week the story of, of Lazarus. And he He died. And he was taken care of. His, his, he never got a reward in this life. Matter of fact, it says that he was, he was poor and he was a beggar on the temple doors his entire life. He never got anything in life. But he received his reward in heaven. And we will too if we will remain steadfast and exercise patience. Amen? And I tell you what, even if nothing gets better, eternity is a whole lot longer than the time we're spending on this earth right now. Amen? In James 5, 9 through 11, it says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, this is an interesting comment from James to not grumble against one another. I think I find it interesting because we, I think we tend to do it a lot more than, than we'll even want to admit to ourselves when we complain about each other. Sometimes it's good-naturedly. Sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of just, uh, we almost, it's almost like we don't even realize we're doing it. 
There'll be times when I'll find myself complaining about, uh, about someone at work or, or something. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't something I should be doing, but you just, sometimes it happens. And then he's particularly talking about in the church, don't grumble against one another. And he's actually talking to the ones that were being oppressed. If you remember, right? Before he was talking to the rich, now he's talking to the ones that are being oppressed, the ones that are being, and he's saying, you know what? Be patient and don't grumble against those who are oppressing you, those who, are, who are, are causing you pain and causing you problems. And to grumble, what it means is to complain or protest about something in a bad-tempered but typically muted way. You know, that's when you're, you're mumbling under your breath about someone, talking about somebody, or, you know, you gather a few people in the corner. I can't believe so-and-so is doing this. I, I can't believe the pastor did this. That's grumbling when you're, when you're, when you're it's like a passive-aggressive thing. But the Bible says we're not to be bad-tempered against those who are giving us cause to be patient. And there'll be plenty of people that'll give you cause to be patient in this life. Everybody in this room will give each other cause to be patient in this life. And you guys have heard me say it before, we're going to irritate each other. We're gonna, I mean, we're, we're a family. I've said it, we're a family. And think about it. There's time my sisters makes me want to throw her out of the side of a moving vehicle. But I love her nonetheless. We're family. We're going to upset each other. We're going to have reason to grumble and complain about each other. But instead of doing that, let's just deal with it. Say, hey, you know, this is something you did, and, and, and this bothered me. And what's usually going to happen is going, the other person's going to go, oh, my goodness, I didn't mean to do, I didn't even understand. I didn't realize I was doing that. And there was really no reason to grumble. We can work it out and deal with it because we're a family. But the reason why we shouldn't, because there's a danger of falling into the, the very sin that we're complaining about. It's, we can fall in, into sin ourselves when we begin to complain about others. Basically, when we're doing this kind of stuff, we're, we're falling into that, that trap where people think that Christians are hypocritical. Because that's the way we're acting. We're complaining about someone's sin while we're falling into to a sin of our very own. But he says, instead, take the prophets as an example. It an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, there were many of the prophets who, who suffered and were persecuted. And by many, I mean all of them. And, and Satan wants you to think that, that you are being persecuted and suffering because of sin. I once had uh, someone I knew who had really bad acne. She was a pastor's wife, and, and uh, she'd been struggling, she struggled with that a lot of her life. And somebody actually came and told him the reason why your wife's struggling with that is because she has some sort of hidden sin. And that's ridiculous. First off, God doesn't try to punish you or correct you by causing you pain and suffering. The Holy Spirit will convict you if you're messing up, but he's not going to cause calamity in your life just to teach you a lesson. God's not giving anybody cancer because they're not living right. There's a devil who's giving people cancer because this is his, his world at the moment and it's fallen, it's broken. But the devil will try to make you think that the reason you're going through these things is because you've somehow sinned, because you've somehow messed up. You didn't go to church enough, you didn't read your Bible enough because you didn't spend enough time in prayer. He'll begin to try to make you think that this is why you're going through these things. But Jesus was tempted and, and Jesus suffered. And all the prophets were suffering. And the truth is, there's going to be many times that you are going to suffer because of your faithfulness. You see all those, those Christians right now that are, that are being beheaded by ISIS. That's not because they're in sin. That's because they love God and they're not going to back down. There are many who are in prison. And it's not because of their sin, but it's because they love God and they're not going to back down. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe. Not could be. You will be persecuted at some point in your life. And I fear that it may get uh, worse depending on the outcome of this election in the United States. But you know, Elijah, he was persecuted and he suffered. This is something to think about. You remember Elijah, he said, I'm going to speak and there's going to be a drought for three plus years. Right? And you're like, that was a mighty act of power, right? Look at him like, man, 
he spoke, and there was no rain for three and a half years. Like, man, that's pretty amazing. I wish God would do something like that in my life. Except for we forget he had to live in a drought for three and a half years that was brought on by, by his words. He didn't get to not live in that drought. Matter of fact, he got to live by a little brook while ravens brought him food. But then he came, and it was at his words again that, that the rain came again. But he, he suffered just like that. And Elijah, he was in the will of God. And then he, he, he comes back, and he, he, he calls the rains back. And, and remember, it started as that, that little tiny cloud after like the fourth time looking. And then it began to rain and pour. And then Jezebel, Ahab's wife, begins to hunt him down. It wasn't because he had sinned. It wasn't because he did anything wrong. It's because she was of the devil and she was coming after him. He was in the will of God, but he still suffered through the same drought that everyone else was. And then after it was said and done, he was hunted down. And David, he had times of suffering. Remember he was being hunted by Saul? I mean, God's like, you're my chosen one. I'm going to make you king. You're a man after my own heart. And he spends the next tens of years being hunted down by, by the, the, previous, the current king. And Saul couldn't decide if he liked David or he hated him. It was up and down, up and down. But he was hunted. He spent time in hiding. Matter of fact, he had to go run and, and, and hide out with a, with a, with a bunch of uh, people that weren't even from his homeland. He couldn't even stay in his homeland because he was being chased. And one of my favorite stories is Joseph, who was a, he was, first he got thrown into a pit by his brothers. Man, that had to suck. People that you thought loved you. And he had one brother that's like, no, we can't kill him. Let's just, uh, let's, let's throw him in a, a pit. And he figured he could go back and save him later. But instead, his brothers sold him into slavery. And God had just given him a dream saying that, that your, your whole family is going to bow down to you. And the next thing he's thrown in a pit. That doesn't seem like somebody that's in the will of God, but he was in the will of God. And then he was, he was made a slave, and then he, he excelled in that household. And then Potiphar's wife accused him of, of, of trying to rape her, and next thing you know, he's in prison. And he didn't do anything wrong. Matter of fact, he was remaining in the will of God. Every time she made an advance in him, he said, you know what, I won't do that my, to my master, and I won't do that to God. He was remaining in the will of God, yet he continued to suffer. He's thrown in prison. But we know the end of the story. He was patient. And you know what's never recorded about Joseph? He never grumbled. He never complained. You never, there's no recording of him complaining. So, oh, but Pastor Wayne, that's because they didn't want to write that. The Bible's not shy about writing about people screwing up and doing dumb things. They didn't write it because it didn't happen. He just continued to trust God. And even when his brothers were afraid, once they found out who he was, he was afraid what they were going to do to him. He thought, they thought, maybe he's going to kill us because we did that to him. And his words were, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He trusted God. And Paul and, and, and the disciples all suffered as well. Matter of fact, almost all the disciples were killed for their faith. But James said, you know what? We consider those blessed who remained steadfast, even though they suffered, even though they faced hard times, even though they were persecuted. James says they remained steadfast and they were blessed. When you look at the case of Job, that's, that's another one of those stories where, uh, if you guys didn't know, Job is the oldest book written in the, in the, in the Bible. And Job loved God. And the devil said, you know what, I'm going to take a shot at him. And he began to, to just tear up this guy's life. But in the end, he came out more blessed than when he went in. He, he, was, he was taken care of by God. He remained steadfast. And he was blessed. And not only that, but just as the, the prophets were blessed for remaining steadfast, they were a blessing to others. And the same thing will happen for us. You have no idea how much your testimony will say one day. You know what? I was trusting God for 10 years for this to happen. 
like 10 years, that's a long time. Does God wait that long? Well, Abraham waited for 25 years. Noah waited for uh, 125 years before the rains came. So hopefully you don't have to wait that long. <laughs> so, but you could, can you imagine your testimony? There'd be a blessing and encourage somebody else's faith. Because you said, you know what? I continued to trust God for years, and this is what happened. This is how God moved in my life. And you'll be an encouragement to others, particularly the people that are going through the same thing, saying, I feel like God's not hearing my prayers. And you say, you know what? Just be patient. Remain steadfast. Let me tell you about what God did in my life. We can be a blessing to others. And we serve a compassionate and merciful God who will ensure that you receive your reward if you'll just remain steadfast. That's the, that's the trick about Christianity. It's just to keep going, to keep getting back up. Don't look behind you. Look forward and keep going. Keep pressing on. Remain steadfast. And in James 5.12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So the habit of swearing was actually common among the Jews. And I don't mean saying curse words. I mean swearing by this. You know, I swear I'll do this. And they would swear on, on different things. But they were very careful not to swear on God because that would, have been, that would have been sacrilege. That would have been using the Lord's name in vain. But Jesus had a problem with what was going on too. This is what Jesus said about it in Matthew 5, 33-37. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Jesus said when you swear by heaven or earth, you can't separate it from God. So as such, when you're swearing by heaven or by earth, you're actually swearing by God, and you're taking the Lord's name in vain. And this was a severe infraction. In Exodus 27, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This was a big deal. And Jesus said, You guys are, are, are getting it mixed up. He says, Don't, You can't separate God from these things. And then he says, you can't swear by, don't swear by the hair on your head because you can't make it black or white. So he's saying, don't swear on, on heaven or earth or anything connected to God because that's using his name in vain. And don't swear on anything else because it's basically worthless. You can't control it. Swearing on the hair of your head means nothing. You can't control the hair on your head. So like Jesus, James is saying that as Christians, we need to have character and integrity. It's as simple as that. When you say yes... Let it be yes. When you say no, let it be no. When you say that you're going to be somewhere, be there. When you say that you're going to do something, do it. It's actually really simple on paper. Just do what you say that you're going to do. The truth is, and unfortunately, this is not the truth in this world, but what it should be is when we, just, when we tell people, I'm a Christian, that should inspire faith in them to believe what we're going to say. That should inspire trust in them. When you say, you know what, I'm a Christian, they should go, oh, I don't even need you to sign anything. Now, unfortunately, that's not the case. But it should be. We should make the best employees as well. Because they know that they can trust us. They know that they can, that they can, they can leave stuff to us and that it's going to be done because we said that we do it. Because they know that we're working for God and not man. And as such, our work is going to be superb. Christians should, should have a character and integrity that's, that's far above anybody else. But unfortunately, it's not the case. But I think that, you know, we can't speak for every other Christian in this world, but we can speak for ourselves and say, as for me, this is how I'm going to live my life. When I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. When I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. People should feel like what we say is as good as done. Amen?
And then in James 5, 13 through 16, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So here's some more practical advice for James. Can you imagine if, if they'd have been successful at striking this from the, from the Bible, how much we would have lost? But here's some practical advice. If anyone is among you suffering, let him pray. Seems like pretty straightforward advice. How many of you guys get headaches from time to time? How many of you guys always ask God to take care of that for you? Simple stuff. We just forget and don't get through our head. If you're suffering in anything, then pray. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're struggling with somebody at work, pray about it. Ask God to give you wisdom and guidance on how to deal with that thing. That's what it means when when the, the Scripture talks to us about pray without ceasing. It's to be in an attitude of prayer at all times. No matter what you're dealing with, good or bad, we should be at a moment's notice to be speaking to God all the time. That's what it means to to be in prayer without ceasing. It's just to be in an attitude of prayer always and speak to God. If you're struggling, say, hey, God, give me a hand with this. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's pretty powerful. We know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have what we ask for. God is not a man that he would change his mind, or, or he's not a man that he would lie, or a son of man that he would change his mind. When God has said something, when you read it, in his, it's as good as done. And he says that in his word, it says, If we pray, we know that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have it. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you need something, talk to God about it. Ask him about it. You don't have to feel guilty about it because he's told you multiple times to do so. It's just in the book of James we just read, we, we have not because we ask not. And then he goes, is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praise. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, give thanks, or give thanks to God that, that, that everything's been taken care of. That's another thing I think we fail in is, is when things are rough, I think most of us, when things are really bad, we'll begin to pray. We begin to reach out to God because we need his help. But when things are going pretty good, we're like, hmm, guess I don't need God right now. That's not how we actually think, but that's basically what we're saying. If you're cheerful, if God's working in your life and things are going good, sing praises. Don't be afraid to give God the praise and glory that is His and to tell Him thank you. How about, is anybody sick? If anybody's sick, get prayed for. Simple instruction. You would think that, I'm always amazed that at the end of every service, I ask if anybody needs prayer and almost nobody ever comes up here. I'm like, man, I must be preaching pretty good if everyone's got perfect faith and they're not having any issues. I mean, things must be going pretty good. But he says if anyone's sick, get prayed for. Sometimes we feel like we're inconveniencing God. See, the reason why most of us won't pray for, for healing for a headache is because we're like, oh, you know what, people got much, much worse things going on that they should get prayed for. I don't want to bother God with my headache. Because... Yeah, God's so small that he can't take care of your headache and somebody else's cancer. You're like, that's not what I think, Pastor Wayne. If you think about it, that's kind of what you're saying. It may not be what you're thinking, but that's kind of what we're saying. We don't want to bother God because he's too busy. That's a box that we put God in. It's not a, not a box that he actually lives in. Just because you don't have a life-threatening disease doesn't mean you shouldn't ask God. Ask for prayer. Scripture says, 
If you're sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The whole anointing him with oil thing, more than likely, most Bible scholars think it's, 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 a, it's a medicinal thing. It's not a, 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 like a holy anointing with oil. It's just a, it's a, they use oil for everything. If they were sick, they used oil as an ointment for everything. And most Bible scholars think that what this is referring to is, is if you've got a headache, go get prayed for and take a Tylenol. Not a big deal. But if I take a Tylenol, does that mean I'm not trusting in God? Well, that's a matter of your heart. I mean, God made the people that made the Tylenol. God made the ingredients in Tylenol that work. If your trust is in God and not in the Tylenol, you'll be just fine. That's the issue, is where's your trust? Are you relying on, on the Tylenol to take care of you or God? I'm relying on God, and he's provided these things for me. So if you have a headache, get prayed for, take some Tylenol, call it a day. And just believe that you've received what you've asked for, which was healing. See, when, when we pray in faith, God hears our prayers. And healing is yours. Healing is, is yours and what Jesus accomplished on his cross, by his stripes, we are healed. People will say, oh no, that's quoting from, from Isaiah, and, and that's just uh, that's talking about the, the health of the nation. That's the health of the people. But in, in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew chapter 17, I, can't I think it's, it's chapter 17, verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 17. I can look it up. I forget what it is. But it, it, it talks about, that, that, that uh, Jesus went around healing everybody, and this was to fulfill the scripture in Isaiah that says, by his stripes we are healed. So I feel pretty safe receiving that as physical healing, that scripture referring to physical healing, if that's what the people in the Bible interpreted it as. Amen? By his stripes we are healed. It's, healing is ours in him. We just need to, to, to do what we're instructed. Lay hands on the sick, they will recover, and we claim what is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen? And then it goes on to say, and this is the one everyone's scared about right now. I can already hear it. I hope he talks about this because I want to know what it means. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, first off, I want you to know this isn't talking about everything that you've ever done wrong. You confess to one another. Every time you mess up, you don't go and confess. What he's talking about is if you sin against one another, if you, if you do something to somebody, go and confess. Say, hey, look, I'm sorry about this. Please forgive me. That's what he said. When he's talking about sins against one another, if you've done so, you just go up there and tell them, say, hey, you know what? I'm sorry I did this. Please forgive me. And you move on. Like I said, we're a family. But he says, confess your sins to one another and then pray for one another. So instead of when somebody messes up and does something to you, instead of holding a grudge and grumbling against them, when they come up and ask forgiveness, you say, yeah, let's pray, let's get through this, let's deal with it, and move on. That you may be healed. There is, there is sickness and disease and negative things and unforgiveness. And it will affect you physically, it will affect you emotionally, It'll affect you spiritually. Deal with it. If we've, I just want to say to any, if more than anything, if we mess up with one another, just say you're sorry. Tell them you love them. Pray for one another. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring healing to that relationship, to your own personal body because of what's going on. So that you may be healed. And then never underestimate the power of your prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Too many times we think that we have to have somebody that we consider super spiritual or or high up the Christian food chain to pray for us. No, we have to have only the pastor can pray for me. The scripture says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Not the prayer of the pastor. Not the prayer of the traveling evangelist. Not the prayer of the worship leader. This is the prayer of the righteous person. How many of you in here are righteous? Raise your hand if you're righteous. If, if you're saved, your hand should be raised. It's not about what you do. 
It's about who you are in Christ. It's about what He did. And if you're righteous in Him, then your, your prayer has power. God hears your prayers. I'm so glad this is getting better. I used to when I asked these questions. Nobody would raise their hand like they were going to answer the question wrongly. But I, I begin to realize the reason I ask this question is there's so many people that don't realize that they are righteous. I say, are you righteous? And they go, ah, I messed up yesterday, so I guess I'm, I'm probably not righteous. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done. If it was about what you were done, you'd never get in. That's why he sent Jesus. Your prayer has great power. And it's because the Spirit of Christ is inside of you. When you pray, God sees it as Jesus praying because you are a new creation in Him. You have His Spirit inside of you. And the same Holy Spirit that's in me is in you. And the same Holy Spirit that's in Jesus. And when we pray, God hears us. That means that you don't, have to, you don't even have to wait to have the elders pray on you. If you're, feeling, if you're feeling sick, go talk to your wife. Go talk to your husband. Ask your kids to pray for you. If your kids are feeling sick, pray for them. One of the, the things that challenged me the most early in my Christian walk is Blake was, was little and he had the flu or something. And we had a friend of ours that went to the church. He came over and said, oh, he's sick. And the first thing this guy did is he walked up to him and laid hands on his stomach and began to pray for my son. And it blew me away because I hadn't even prayed for my son. And that was kind of the eye-opener to me. Like, wait a minute. This is what I should be doing. I, whenever something's bothering my wife or my kids, I, I ask them. They'll tell you. I pray for them. Sometimes probably it irritates them more than it does anything, but I'm going to pray for them. And you can pray for one another. It doesn't need to be me praying for you or, or Joseph or any other leaders in the church. It just, we can pray for one another, and your prayer has power just as much as mine. It's also another thing that drives me crazy when people get this idea that, uh, or you see, you'll see them on, the, uh, on Facebook or on emails, like, please pray for this. And if, if we get, you know, 1,000 likes, one people agreeing to pray, we'll see what God will do. Well, God will answer your prayer alone. You don't need to have other pray, people praying. Now, I'm not opposed to getting multiple people to pray because we stand in agreement. That's important. But there's not, a, there's not a tipping point for God like... I would have totally healed that person if they would have just got one more person praying. Sorry. It's nothing about that. God loves you. He's not looking for a certain amount of people to pray. He's looking for your faith to believe that he'll do what he said he would do. And don't get me wrong. We're always going to ask people to stand together, but it's not, a, it's not about the tipping point for God. It's about standing in agreement with one another. Because what's the Scripture say? If any two agree on a thing, then it's done. So we will stand in agreement. But it's not about trying to somehow push God into doing something. He'll hear your prayer. Amen? We've got two more to get through. James 5, 17 through 18 says, Elijah was a man with a very nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. How often do we, and this is kind of what we were just talking about now, but how often do we read people in the Bible and somehow elevate them to a status that's so far above our own that we think that we could never compare to them, that God can never use us in the same way because there's something super spiritual about them, there was something special about them, and God can never do in me what he's done in the people that I read about in the Bible. I think we do it all the time. We see them like, oh, man, I, I find myself doing it on occasion. I'm like, man, this is Paul we're talking about. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but Paul wasn't any different than me. He wasn't a, 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 better, a better person than I was, a better man than I was. God didn't love him more than he loves me. And if God can use Paul like that, God can use me like that. And God can use you like that to impact a nation. Paul's case to impact the world. It says that Elijah was just like us. Just like us. A nature like ours. But he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it didn't. Because he trusted God. He prayed in faith. 
and God heard his prayer. And even still, after this incredible, incredible act of power that God worked through him, as soon as he found out Jezebel wanted him dead, he turned tail and ran and hid in a cave. Just like us, he had shortcomings. He got afraid. There were moments when he wasn't sure God was with him. I mean, he just did something incredible. I mean, he got up there with all the, all the prophets of Baal and, and, and sat there and mocked them, all these people. And then one little girl comes out, going to chase him down, and he gets scared. He's no different than us. None of these people are. They're just like us. With the only difference being is that they trust God full, full force. And he did what seemed like an impossible prayer. Anybody ever prayed for something that was impossible? I think it was, was it, I don't know if it was this Wednesday or last Wednesday, Joseph said, we were reading the scripture where it says, if you, if you pray to this mountain, be, be taken up and cast into the sea. He says, do you think that, that if you did that, it would really happen? I believe, yeah. I think he's it's, it's, it's speaking metaphorically as well, but I, I think that if you, if you trust God, God's going to, I mean, do you remember when Jesus told to the, to the sons of thunders, like, should we call down fire? And he's like, no, you don't know what you're, you're speaking. He didn't say, no, that wouldn't be possible. He said, no, watch your mouth. Don't, you don't know what spirit you're of. But he never told them that it wasn't possible. When we pray in faith, supernatural things will and can and will happen. Promises we don't believe it. That's our biggest, our biggest problem with prayers. We don't believe that what we pray for will actually happen. And some of it's so fantastical. I mean, we, some people, you know, we, we, we pray for people that have cancer because it's the right thing to do, but we don't really believe that God's going to heal them because science says it's not, it's not true, so it must not be possible. It is possible. I've seen it. But we get it in our head that this, this can't be possible. But we can pray for impossible things. And we should. And when we pray, it shouldn't be like, I hope God will do that. We should expect God to move in these ways. There should be an attitude of expectation every time that we pray. And I believe that if we can get a hold of that, when we pray, we expect God to move, that there is no doubt in our heart, we believe 100% that He's going to do what we ask, that we're going to see a change in what happens in this church, in this city. And we're going to see that the scripture says that signs and wonders should follow them who believe, yet we don't see it all that often because we just think that was something nice that was written. But the truth is, is that that's what God wants for us, to trust him and to let him move powerfully and mightily by our hands. And if we'll just take a moment to, to put our faith in, in him and, and, and do the things he asks and just pray when we're told to pray and believe that he's going to do it, we're going to see amazing things happen. We're going to see a, uh, see a city turned upside down. I want them to say about, about me, like they said about uh, Paul and Barnabas, I think it's where he said, he said, look, those people that, that have turned the, the world upside down are here also. That's how I want to be known. It's someone that turned the world upside down for God. James 5, 19-20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And this is where we're going to end today. Anybody ever heard the expression, once saved, always saved? This kind of flies in the face of that. If anyone wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It is possible to walk away from your salvation. If you stop trusting in God, if you stop having faith in Him, then you can walk away. But the Scripture says if anyone wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Isn't it good news that even if, if you do wander away, even if you do, like we see all those people that I used to trust God and, and now I don't believe anymore and they turn their back on them 
And I'm not talking about people that are having a bad day. I'm not talking about messing up. I'm talking about people that have said that I no longer believe in God. I no longer receive salvation. These are people that have wandered from the truth. God will still take them back. And it says that whoever brings them back, who shows them love, it says that will cover a multitude. It doesn't even matter what they did while they were gone. Those sins were taken care of in Christ just the same. And we need to make sure personally that we're not shunning people when they fail or they fall or stop, stop loving them. But instead, that we are, we are if, if they'll listen to us, then we're ministering to them. And if they won't listen to us, that we're praying for them to be drawn back in. And when we do, we're doing them a great service. Because if they repent and turn their eyes back on God again, then they're, they're back in the same standing that they had before. They're not slightly less saved. They're exactly where they were before. They're made brand new again in Him. And no matter what multitude of sins they've covered, Jesus has covered them. And I believe, you know, when we stand before for Jesus one day, because we are going to give an account, these are the things that we take with us. That are, when we bring somebody in, when we, when we share the gospel, when they get saved, I think this is what they're going to look at. Because it doesn't matter how many buildings we build or how many chairs we can put up. It's about how many people got to know Jesus because of us. So as we end what I believe is an incredible book of instruction, we actually made it through today, praise God. <laughs> We're at the end here. But as we, as we end this book of instruction, let's resolve to do a, do a few things. One, Let's resolve to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Let's be doers of the word. What does that look like? That means when, it, when we read in the word that it says, if you're, if you're cheerful, sing praises, or if you're suffering, pray, or if you're sick, go to the elders and get hands. That, that's, don't just be here and go, oh, that's a good idea. But be doers. That means that if you're cheerful, sing praises. That means that if you're sick, actually get someone to lay hands on you. That means that if you're suffering, actually pray. Be doers of the word. Next, we need to resolve to be a people that aren't friends with the world. Because being a friend with the world is enmity with God. Let's also be a people who are going to take control of our tongues and watch what we say. Because if we will just begin to control the things that we say, you'll see your life go in a completely different direction. And finally, let's resolve to be a people who love our brethren, love our brothers and sisters, with everything that we have, and let's resolve to be a people who pray with faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Hallelujah.